All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. We are here to equip transformational leaders for the church in rural America. And I'm Todd Stanley, and I'm here with a very familiar face and with a brand new face for the podcast. So to my right is Pastor Mel Massengale, and across the table from me is Michael Bond. Say hello, fellas. Hello. Hey, what's up, everybody? <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, hey, we are glad that you are here with us uh, for a kind of a, a really a brand new era of the Back 40 Leadership Podcast. Uh, we're going to be having a brand new format, and uh, I'm really excited about it. So we'll, there'll be uh, at least three of us at the table almost every episode, and we will be having more of a kind of discussion, just kind of a conversation. Uh, I know a lot of you are used to our kind of long format uh, interview podcast, and there will be some of those that are interspersed throughout this. We're not going to completely abandon that, but we thought it might be a good way for us to invite you guys into the conversation a lot more interactively. Uh, there are going to be some really great things that are happening. Every other week, you'll see an episode like this that's uh, kind of pre-recorded and edited down so that we can get the best content that we possibly can out to you. And then uh, in between those, so there will be a live episode where we will be live on YouTube and you'll be able to log in to the comments and ask questions and comment on things from past the past episode, uh, ask questions, that kind of thing. So we really want you guys to get engaged in that and be along for the ride for that. I think it could be a lot of fun and really valuable to us as a community. Yeah, we're excited about uh about what uh, we're going to be doing and inviting people into this conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, you introduced it to season two, and it's kind of like a lot of television shows <laughs> that, you know, through COVID, they got right. went on hiatus. And season three happened, like, way after season two. So we had a little bit of a gap. And so if you're new to the uh, podcast or you're returning, whatever the case may be, we're really excited to have you guys. And, uh, and with the format, it really is just inviting people into a conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, this is super exciting. I'm happy to be a part. I'm really excited for what we're going to talk about today, Todd, the Sunday gatherings. Yeah, yeah. So uh, coming up, we're going to be really just deconstructing, and there's a, a loaded word, but deconstructing the Sunday service and asking a lot of questions about what it should look like. Does it have to look like it's always looked? All those kinds of things. Uh, we'll dive into that as we go forward. But right now, I'm excited. This is a brand new segment for the podcast called This Week in Church Leadership. And so this is a time when each of us will kind of bring some things that we found over the past weeks uh, that deal with church leadership and things that are going on. It could be anything from the absurd to the sublime. And so, uh, Michael, why don't you kick us off? What do you got going on this week from This Week in Church Leadership? Okay, so I went straight to the serious and uh, dark. No surprise there. <laughs> but um, I thought we would yeah, talk... As people get to know you, they'll find out. That's no <laughs> surprise. I thought we would talk about the Canadian church burnings. Um, so... Essentially, what's happened is I think 57 churches have been burned uh, and they've been burned because of social justice activists who are um, claiming that the Roman Catholic Church had assimilation schools that uh, were 
not well staffed, that were neglecting the children that were there. And so they found these uh, grave sites where there were children's uh, bodies, you know, the, from, from these schools. And they called them mass graves. And they thought that while these kids were being abused, neglected, and that the church was in charge of these schools, and there are... There's already a school of thought that is uh, sort of against the idea of assimilation to begin with, but let alone the fact that the church was sponsoring and, and operating these schools, the Roman Catholic Church. They have uh, taken retribution on the Canadian churches, and I think that most of them are like Anglican and some Coptic Christian churches uh, that they've burned. And I guess my question is, when something like this happens where you have, I don't think there's... Uh, I think there's validity to the injustice that they're talking about. Like the, the grave sites are real. The fact that these children were housed at these schools is true. Um, and the fact that these schools were not staffed well and that there was abuse happening and that sort of thing, as far as I know, is all accurate. And so should church leaders today uh, lend credence to what the activists are saying and doing, or and should they maybe carry out their own investigation to determine the validity of the claims? Or should they, should they push back on it? So someone's burning Anglican and Coptic churches because they're angry at the Roman Catholics. That's my understanding. Okay. Just want to make sure I understand that. <laughs> All right. Mel, what do you think? Um, I mean, we live in a world that it's, um, everything is polarized and we like to make things fit in our neat worldview. And because of that, we want to defend our positions. And I think whether it's as a church or as a, if, if you're a person who has a political leaning or whatever it might be, it's easy for us to try to defend those positions. Um, and I think it's easy, especially for the Catholic church, historically, they have defended their position um, at the cost of people at times. And, uh, and I think that's probably some of the outrage you see from, um, what did you call them, activists? Yeah, I called them social justice activists. So, the SJWs, uh, whatever it might be. Anyway, and so I think that that I there's some understandable outrage there for sure because there's a history of churches, not just the Catholic Church, but a lot of churches not owning their mistakes and not being transparent or open about their own shortcomings and stupidity. And, um, and I think as a result, that fuels some of that stuff. So I think 100% churches... And leaders should be held accountable for some of the things they do. And I don't know if that's the right way to do it. I would certainly not endorse uh, burning churches to the ground. But I also can understand in some ways um, when there's seems to be no results, what are you doing? And what mm -hmm. are we doing about this? And so I think, you know, that there's not a simple answer for this. But I think the Catholic Church has to own some of this and go, hey, yeah, we were dumb. And hey, we were negligent, and hey, people pay the price. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the real, the real solution or the real uh, lesson isn't the Catholic Church needs to handle their business. The real, the real lesson is what are the areas in my church that I'm neglecting? Right. You know, um, who are the people that may be marginalized? That in my effort to defend the ministry, I'm further marginalizing, or you know, that's yeah. kind of my takeaway yeah. from that yeah. story. Well, and I think too it. it points to a, a larger narrative just in our culture in general in the ways that we try to get our voices heard. Um, you know, I don't think, and you know, especially for those of us who um, 
come from a Christian worldview, I think it's important for us to always remember that uh, returning evil for evil is never the answer. That's never the way that we should go. I mean, we're called to overcome evil with good. And so, you know, I, I don't know who these folks are that are burning these churches. I'm just saying for us as Christians, I think we need to step back and examine ourselves in that regard because sometimes we can be guilty of uh, falling into that tit-for-tat kind of thing as well. So biblically, would you say that pastors should be teaching in this context with this particular situation that um, that churchgoers or that members of the congregation share responsibility uh, for the wickedness or the actions of people maybe from a couple hundred years ago, uh, what would you say in terms of uh, the collective burden of sin there? Or, or should people, are people justified in saying, well, I had nothing to do with that, you know, 200 years ago. I like, Mel, where you went with that, with uh, using this as an opportunity to look at the state of things now and say, okay, is there the kind of neglect and abuse that led to this tragedy? Is stuff like that happening right now that maybe we're not noticing? And we can notice that now and learn and become better than the generation that uh, this kind of thing took place under. I mean, I, I would be, I would tend to say, I don't know that I would encourage our congregation to, um, to carry the, the weight of that sin that's 100 years old or 200 years old or whatever it is, as much as it would be, you know, we don't need to pay the penance for that, but we need to learn from that and grow from that and identify how that is can still be a human heart issue even today. So if there are things going on, issues of abuse or neglect or whatever it is, like that doesn't go away historically. I mean, that's something we have to root out in our own hearts at times. And so, yeah, I wouldn't be a a fan of saying, okay, we've got to, we've got to carry the the collective weight of that. But I also Mm -hmm. think there's power in, especially a leader, um, repenting collectively Mm -hmm. for a group. Um, you see, you see that in scripture, um, and it would have been easy for individuals to go, well, but I didn't commit that sin, but no, we're guilty of it collectively. So mm-hmm. let's repent of it and move forward. And so I don't know if that's a, that's a non-answer answer, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, I was talking to actually talking about this with someone earlier today, oddly enough, um, not this particular issue, but there's this idea that, you know, this, the sins of the father are visited on the son. And so while we are not culpable in the sins of someone who came before us a couple hundred years ago or whatever, a hundred years ago, uh, we're not culpable in that sin, but the effects of that still have bearing on where we're at today. And so I think the challenge for us is to be sensitive to the fact that the pain that people feel, the outrage, the anger that people feel about things that happened 50, 100 years ago, that those feelings are still valid. I mean, if, you know, my, my great-grandmother, um, you know, who's gone now but lived to be 103 years old, uh, was born in the year 1900, um, you know, if there had been tragedy that she had walked through, it would have had great effect on my grandmother. And then, you know, on, and, and then me, I, like I, I interacted with her. I had relationship with her. And so a uh, hundred years is not that long ago. Mm-hmm. It's not that far removed. I mean, uh, you know, you and I, and probably all of us at this table have interacted with people who were alive 
a hundred years ago, experiencing mm-hmm. what went on firsthand. And so those pains are very real, and we need to be aware of that and be sensitive to that, even though we don't carry the culpability of those sins. Yeah, I mean, this is really good. I've learned. So what I'm hearing is a two-part resolution to the situation that we discussed with the Canadian church burnings and everything that happened and the, the abuse which led to that. The, the two-part resolution, this is why I love podcasts, because, man, I coming into this, I was looking at this article like, I don't know what to do with this. Like what, I don't know the answer to this, but so here's what I'm hearing. Um, while we may not, we may not be guilty for the particular sin that happened X amount of time ago, we should be wary and watchful for the general dysfunction, which manifests as particular sins. And while we might not have that particular sin, uh, specifically manifesting in us right now that happened X amount of time ago, we still have the general dysfunction which could pop up as a particular sin. So we should be watchful for it in our modern context. And <laughs> it feels like somewhere along the way we started talking about race and slavery and reparations and things like that. Yeah, it's it's all in there, man, for sure, for sure. Uh, so here's the thing I would say to that. If the gospel, the thrust of the gospel and the aim of the kingdom of God is the renewal of all things, there, there is nothing outside of the scope of that. And so I, we need to be invested and involved in, in bringing healing and restoration to all things because that is the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Was there a second part of that, Michael, that you were going to say? The second part was what I drew out of what Todd said was uh, that history has consequences mm-hmm. and that we should be, while we may not have been actors in that particular history, uh, we should be aware of the effects and the consequences and do what we should do. Do, be able to do to redeem and restore yeah. in all the ways that we can. Yeah, I agree with that. And, um, and and all this is messy and it's not linear and it's not always clean and and it's easy for us to go, well, I'm I'm absolved of that because but at the same time, you know, <laughs> the human heart is wicked, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like we are given to. I might not be a racist, but I'm still given to um biases. Uh, and I've, I've got to be aware of those biases, whether it's about, um, you know, somebody's socioeconomic class or whatever it might be. And I've got to be aware of those biases. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's not even something that's as popular in our culture as, you know, some of the, some of the things we hear about and talk about. But maybe I've got a bias against people from a certain area, you know, right. or whatever it mm-hmm. might be. Uh, we've got to be aware of those things um, and just guard our hearts constantly. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, so how about something a little lighter? <laughs> um, so uh, I've got, I found an article this week, and uh, it's about a church in Prince William County, Maryland. And so they had been meeting in a school, were not able to meet in the school any longer during uh, COVID because restrictions that were there. And they have a piece of property, and they wanted to be able to use their property to meet Um and we're in the process of getting a special exemption. You know, how if, if you've been involved in church planting or building and that kind of thing, and uh, you're, you're familiar with that. Well, that was going to be, um, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money to get the special exemption. So they went to the county and said, hey, what can we do? Um, the county's solution was, well, you can operate like an agribusiness. So, uh, you know, you could have a pumpkin patch on your property and that kind of thing, or a farmer's market or breweries and wineries are able to do this uh, and have this, you know, and operate like an agribusiness. Uh, but in order to do that, you're going to have to get a liquor license. 
So the church is really opposed to getting a liquor license. Uh, they're from a denomination that really holds a strict stance on that. Uh, and so now we're at an impasse, and the church is suing the county um, for discrimination because they don't want to have to purchase a liquor license. So I had a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, I understand the position of the church, but at the same time, I was kind of going, well, okay, is the liquor license a lot cheaper and a lot quicker than going through the process for special exemption? And if so, what's the problem with just buying the liquor license and doing nothing with it? I'll throw that out there. Yeah, well, I mean, if it wasn't cost prohibitive to get the liquor license, it seems to me that maybe... Okay, so if a let's just even if say it's not a church, if it's anyone who's uh, any kind of ministry who's seeking to evangelize or share the gospel, if they're going to allow the hurdle of the liquor license to prevent them from sharing the gospel, are they more interested in prideful sobriety or are they more interested in sharing the gospel? Um, like what's the, I would ask what the motivation is for not wanting to purchase the liquor license. I mean, again, like I, my, it's my understanding that they're very, very expensive, but if it's less costly to go the liquor license route and it speeds up the process, that would be, it seems like a no brainer to me as far as. I, I could make a couple arguments here from different perspectives. Number one, I would say if you're a church that was uh, against the sale and consumption of alcohol, um, in most places there are a limited number of liquor licenses. So you could make a case that by them getting a liquor license, it's going to keep somebody else from getting it. It's actually going to use it. Right. Um, the other thing I would say is there's some there's something to be said for um, holding a moral line and saying yeah. this is what our convictions are, and even if it costs us, this is what it's this is what we're going to do. And I, um, I mean, <laughs> you were saying this is going to be lighter. This might be getting heavier now. <laughs> I don't know uh, that it is. <laughs> but but uh, I mean, like even with tax exempt status, there's going to come a day I firmly believe where churches are going to lose their tax exempt status if they speak out against homosexuality or LGBTQ issues. And so churches are going to have to make a decision about, hey, what are our values? Do we really believe this? Are we going to are we going to take a, a biblical or moral stance that's going to cost us something? And so this is kind of, in my view, kind of the same thing where they go, maybe they're just going to make a moral stance and go, hey, we are fundamentally against this. Even if it costs us, we don't care. Uh, and I could make a pretty strong case that that's worth it. And even though the utility of getting the liquor license and seems like it makes sense, yeah. I, I can also understand that view where they go, nope, this is what our conviction is and we're going to hold fast to it. Yeah, and I mean, I, I was aware of bringing this article even that there were there were larger issues at play that we could get into and talk right. about. Uh, and so, you know, maybe that is part of the question here of going, you know, like questions about like business as mission, yeah. that kind of thing, those kinds of models. And, and really that might be able to even be part of the conversation that we have uh, about Sundays and what that could look like, especially in a smaller church context. Um but, um, you know, I was just thinking, you know, it may, it seems silly on the surface, like what, you know, buy a liquor license, uh, or, or go through the special exemption process. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but at the same time, I think these are going to become questions that churches are having to ask themselves more and more and more. So I'll, I'll push back on this just a little bit, um, in that. To me, it's not obvious where the moral line is drawn. Like, I agree in the sense that we should hold to our convictions and have moral lines, but 
Um, all of us at the table here have Apple devices. Yet I'm. Hey, convinced. you shut your mouth. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> you stop talking right now. Yeah. I'll, just, I'll just mute my own mic before I get myself in trouble. Um, but I'm convinced that none of us would agree with the uh, the labor that goes yeah. into producing these devices. Yeah. But I think that we've come to an understanding, and more importantly, uh, people who are benefiting from the ministry have an understanding that just because we have the Apple device doesn't mean that we condone the, what produced every practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And same thing. I mean, we've had these conversations in our church about people who are upset that we don't have an American flag in our auditorium. Um, but they will wear Nike shoes. It's like, wait a second. (laughs) Like, you know, like if you're going to be morally outraged about one thing, let's carry, let's be consistent about our moral outrage. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I totally get that. And I think, you know, that example of like Apple or something like that, uh, I think there is, there might be a degree of separation between the offense and the end user that we are comfortable with. If that makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. Hey, when, when the degree of offense is in our backyard or in within the realm of my control, then that's, that's where I'm going to draw the line. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we go, Nope, this is way down the line then I'm a little more, it's a little more palatable. And I don't know if that's right, but I think that's where a lot of people are. Yeah, certainly if uh, people who would attend this church would say, oh, well, my church has a liquor license, therefore I can uh, indulge in alcohol because mm-hmm. my church has a liquor license. Like, if, And if you can <laughs> see the clear chain from one to the other, then I would, I would agree that that would be something you wouldn't want to, uh, it wouldn't be a path you'd want to walk down. Yeah, this yeah. was a nice and light one, man. Right. Thank you. I, uh, I did my best to, <laughs> to bring some levity to the conversation. Uh, I do have one more, uh, maybe even heavier than this one. Um, so uh, I came across an article uh, about a pastor uh, who, uh, and I'll try to be sensitive, uh, had a very prominent ministry, uh, was fired from his church, uh, not for moral failure. Technically, or, he resigned. T- technically, he did resign. Um, anyway. Uh, I like how cryptic you're being because none of our <laughs> listeners are going to know who you're talking about, I'm sure. Oh, I bet they all will, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm, okay. 100% this is going viral. Tread carefully, Todd. Is it? Okay, sweet. Uh, so anyway, um, he basically was fired for being a jerk. Uh, we'll put it that way. And then went to another area of the country, planted another church, and now is in hot water for some of the same behaviors that were happening before. So I thought there would be a, maybe a conversation there about um, about accountability, maybe, or the, the need for... Um, mentors who are actively speaking into your life or humility in leadership and all of those, all of those are on the table, but, uh, this isn't, he's not the, the first or the last, um, to come under fire for some of these same things. In fact, I saw as well that like, uh, the, the guy who the CEO of Acts 29, which is a church planting organization, if you're not familiar with them, uh, actually just, um, was accused of kind of some bullying and overbearing behavior, that kind of thing, really, you know, spiritual abuse, mm-hmm. uh, and stepped down from Acts 29. And so, you know, this is has been a pattern and a problem 
Um, I'll just let you guys weigh in. I don't. Um, so here's the thing. A lot of leaders, a lot of high-level leaders that I know um, very easily have the charge leveled against them that they're bullies. And a lot of times it's a function of their personality because they are strong leaders. They believe strongly in what their convictions are and what God's called them to do. And, and it's very easy for other people to go, Oh, they're a bully. Cause, and it's like, well, maybe they are, but maybe they're not. So I think I'm not defending any of the people, um, that, that maybe we mentioned directly or indirectly, but <laughs> at the same time, I also know that that is an easy charge to level against people. Yeah. Um, cause I've had that, I've, I've, I've been told I'm a bully. Um, and I don't believe that's my heart, but I also know my personality type. I can run over people unintentionally if I'm not careful. So, so that's, that's one level, but I think the difference is, I think I've got people in my life that can call me out and go, Hey, you're being a butthole. Can I say butthole on the back 40 podcast? You just did it's my podcast. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. So <laughs> like I have people that can call me out and go on, Hey, Hey, you're, you're being a jerk. Do you realize that how you sounded when you said that? Um, and that's one of the things that I think we think the higher we go in leadership, the less accountability we have. And I think sometimes that's the draw of leadership is cause we go, Oh, you know, I have fewer people yeah. telling me what to do <laughs> and we won't say that, but we feel that way. But the reality is the higher we go in leadership, the more accountability we need. Yeah. Um, we need stronger people in our life to be able to say, Hey, you're being a jerk. Um, and so the danger is when we move up or we have more authority or we have a bigger platform, uh, we have fewer people calling us out, uh, because sometimes their livelihood depends on us. You know, we're their boss, so they're not going to call us out because they're being taken care of or, you know, their job depends on it. And as a result, uh, it just creates unhealthy rhythms and unhealthy patterns and, and unhealthy motivations. Pastors start thinking, I can get away with whatever I want. Or, man, this, this is based on me. And it's like, ooh, that's dangerous for anybody. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's, it's a very multifaceted issue. It's not just as simple as they're being jerks. Somebody should do something about it. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, I don't know any of these folks personally that are referenced in these articles, but I think to me, the thing that is important for all of us to recognize is that that kind of, well, that, that wickedness resides in our hearts, yeah. that we are all capable of, um, you know, allowing pressure to get to us or, you know, if we have a certain level of success, allowing that to go to our heads and then to think that, you know, that we have some some leeway uh, mm -hmm. that we that we don't have. Well, we start thinking we deserve this. Yeah, I, I deserve this. Yeah, and and the the genesis of that is what's really dangerous because we think, well, I deserve this, and we might actually be able to justify whatever this is in a small place because <laughs> nobody ever starts with I deserve to be able to bully my staff. Right. I deserve to have this extramarital affair. But it, it starts somewhere else where they go, well, I deserve this yeah. bit of compensation or I deserve to be able to use church resources for because I work really hard. And that's whether you're a church of 100 or a church of 10,000. Yeah, it's absolutely. easy to do that. Absolutely. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, that's fine. That's, I mean, that's exactly the thing is to recognize that that, that resides in me as well. That resides yeah. in my heart as well if I'm not submitted and surrendered to Christ. Um I saw a series of tweets this week from uh, Jake Smith, uh, if you're familiar with him at all, but he was talking about how that it's completely possible to be really intelligent, 
really well read, have sound doctrine, but be unchanged in our heart. Yeah. You know, and that that time in the presence of God and allowing Him to transform our hearts and renew our minds is uh, at least as important, if not more important, than sound doctrine. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the fact that sometimes we we both. Uh, both overestimate and underestimate the importance of sound doctrine at the same time. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, one of, one of the friends of back 40, Kerry Newoff, I've heard him say several times here and then, you know, in his podcast and on his blog that leaders should work twice as hard on their character as their capacity. Yeah. And I think we forget that. I think it's just easy to do what we're good at. I'm a good singer. I'm going to keep singing. I'm a good preacher or whatever it might be. And, uh, and we neglect our heart issues. That's really interesting. Um, that idea of working twice as hard on your character as you do, as you work on your capacity. And I wonder if, so let's, here's a proposition. Tell me if you agree with it. Leadership selects for people who either are, have a lack of empathy because they're a bully, um, or are able to selectively reduce their empathy when they need to make tough decisions. I mean, if you're, if you're a leader with an aim (laughs) and you're aiming somewhere, that means you're not aiming in all the other places. And so leadership seems to be exclusive by nature of certain perspectives and certain ideas. Someone comes to you with a super passionate idea and is like, Oh, I think this would be great. We should really implement this. But if it doesn't line up with the vision and the aim, and then you have to shut off your empathy to some degree and say, no, we can't do this. Yeah. And then the way that's received is probably like crushing and, oh, you know, he, he just ran right. He, there wasn't even any sadness in his eyes kind of thing. <laughs> like, just lifeless. <laughs> so um, do you think that, uh, I guess the question out of that is because there's utility and being able to selectively reduce your empathy or compartmentalize it, do you think that that plays into the admonition to work twice as hard on your character as you do on your capacity? Because you end up, the problem is you end up seeing all the utility and being able to keep your empathy nice and tucked away over here and how you can, makes you impervious to certain things like criticism maybe. Mm. Well, this is, I think this is related to that. I'm in a, in a group of ministers um, of large churches and, our church is probably one of the smaller churches represented in this group. And there's 25 or 30 pastors. And some of them pastor very, very, very large churches, like some of the biggest churches in America. And so we'll just dialogue about different issues, topics, things like that at times. Just, hey, what are you doing about this? And and it's, it's an interesting group. Uh, but somebody asked a while back, hey, I'm just curious, what are your Enneagram numbers? And uh, for those of you that are listening that don't, do the Enneagram or subscribe to the Enneagram or you think it's of this, of the devil, you know, you can skip forward a few seconds, but it was interesting to me because, um, every single pastor in the group was one of three numbers. They were either a three, a seven or an eight and threes and eights can be historic jerks. Uh, especially <laughs> if we're unhealthy, I'm an eight, um, threes can be jerks cause they're driven you know, they can leave achievement. Yeah. Yeah. They want to win. They want to get things done. And, um, and then sevens, uh, I think even if they're unhealthy can, but sevens are like the life of the party, the, you know, they're very charismatic, but I think the threes and the eights, especially coming back to your, your idea, I think it makes a lot of sense because when I heard that, I was like, Ooh, 
are these people the people that we just that churches default to because they go, oh, they're strong leaders mm-hmm. or they're charismatic personalities. Um, is that the is that the prerequisite for leading a large church? And if so, is that because it's a man made filter that that we have kind of pushed our way or you know what I mean? And so, yeah. so I think there's something related there, and I think it is healthy for us to be able to go, okay, how much of this is the leading of God, and how much of this yeah. is just a, a, a charismatic or strong leader? you know, yeah. pushing a, an idea or whatever it might be. I mean, I've, I've certainly seen it the opposite, not on a large scale though. I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever seen a big church that wasn't, I mean, I haven't seen a ton of big churches, but I don't think I've ever seen a big or even medium sized church that wasn't led by someone who was uh, able to be strong and able to mm-hmm. stand for their convictions and pursue their, their aim and all of that. Um, but I have seen very small churches who were pastored by uh, pastors who, were so aware and so sensitive to what others thought of them that the congregation steered the pastor. And um, I I don't think that's the right model at all. I I wouldn't say, because I mean, I think it's healthy to always be able to receive feedback and to have the humility for that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, if you're not leading, then that's a pretty big part of pastoring. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, the churches that we've come into contact with um, for coaching or just relationship that struggle, that the pastors struggle. It's that a lot of times they don't struggle to write a good sermon or to preach or to love their people. They struggle to have hard conversations to have, you yeah. know, pull somebody aside and go, Hey, you're an obstacle to the ministry in our church because of your attitude. And I'm going to need you to step down. And it's like, well, that person's been in that position forever. Well, that's part of the problem. Um, and so I think it's probably somewhere in between. I think some of the pastors that rely on um, sheer force at times instead of the Holy Spirit probably need to soften their hearts. Mm-hmm. And some of the pastors who um, are, are uncomfortable or unwilling to have some of those conversations or to take some of those stands or whatever it might be, they probably need to uh, awaken some steel in them. And that feels like a very uh, non-spiritual way of saying that. But I think there's it's probably a little of, of both of those things. So do you think that it is so, okay, so maybe we have man-made filters on both ends of the spectrum here. We have one that would suggest that, uh, people who aren't willing to look at, uh, the world or their church or their congregation with all of the nuance and all of the messiness and all of the details that are there, those people might defer to a strong leader because he'll just take care of everything for us. He'll, Mm -hmm. you know, I I don't got to worry about it because he'll handle it. And so they, they have that sort of complacency or that, that, uh, that desire to just be blindly led wherever. Um, and so maybe you have a filter on the strong men and that might be one of the things that results in like cults of personality emerging around strong men leaders. Um, and then on the other side, maybe you have a man-made filter that suggests that, well, if you don't have a soft heart and you're not aware constantly of the feelings of other people, maybe you're not that much of a Christian. And I would say that like going too far in either of those directions is it's not accurate, but it also requires more of a nuanced way of thinking. And if, when you defer to the oversimplified, you end up in falling into one of those uh, black holes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, um, those tendencies that we have, we, we develop those things as means of navigating the world, right? That it becomes a defense mechanism for us. So whether somebody is really assertive, um, maybe leaning into the kind of bullying kind of, you know, that 
that's a defense mechanism that they've developed to try and you know navigate the world and to and the same is true on the other end of that spectrum people who are always deferring to others and always you know not willing yeah. to assert their opinions they they're doing that as a means of uh, of protecting themselves as a means of defense like I'll, I'll just you know to go back to the enneagram I'm a 9 uh and if I am not careful, I can be motivated by um, just not wanting there to be conflict between me and the people around me because I want them to accept me. I don't want them to leave me, right? And we could get into this whole psychology thing about why that's the case and unpack my story and my history. That's, <laughs> that's not the point of this uh, podcast, however. But, but all of that to say... If we're unaware of those things and unaware of how my brokenness and my sinfulness can steer me into those things, um, then then I'm then I'm not going to be equipped to to surrender it to the Holy Spirit and go, God, I need you to. You know, I need you to give me the metal that I need to have this difficult conversation. I need you to help me understand that uh, I don't have to bully people to get to where I need to be, that, that you're going with me, you know, whichever end of that spectrum that you, you kind of fall on and what it, whatever your motivations may be and the things that have shaped you into the person that you are, you know. And so what happens, going, going back to the original context of this conversation, what happens with pastors who end up in a ditch, whether it's they, ha- whether they had an affair on their, on their spouse or whether they, uh, are being a bully and railroading people and then treating people in ways that are not Christ-like. And, you know, whatever that context may be, if we are not continually laying those things at the feet of Christ, uh, then we can find ourselves in that same place. And the thing about it is the, the mechanics of ministry don't change just because my heart is not in the right place, right? Mm-hmm. I can I can I still know how to study for a sermon. Yeah. I still know how to get up and deliver on a, on a mic, right? I I still know how to get up and be a a good public speaker or or lay out a a a three point well thought out sermon. But that doesn't mean that my heart is right. Yeah. I'm, I still might I can still get up and play the guitar and lead worship and understand the the emotional nuance of a song and deliver a song in a way that is compelling and draws people in. And uh, the mechanics of ministry do not change just because my heart is not right. Yeah. And we can fall into the trap of thinking that because things are going well, because because I can still preach a good sermon and yeah. and somebody cried or because I can lead worship well well then you know then things must be okay well, meanwhile my heart is wicked and I'm I'm running toward burnout and I'm abusing and using people in ways that they you know that yeah. God never intended and then what happens is that all of that stuff that's in my heart man it's it's not going to come out on the stage right. it's going to come out somewhere else that's going to be way more damaging than if it came out on the stage yeah yeah, another friend of the Back Forty Network, uh, Gerald Brooks. One of the things he talks about a lot, and if you don't, if you don't listen to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast, you really should. Um, but one of the things he talks about a lot is, um, you know, the the people who get the stage, um, and and how selective he is on who he lets get on the stage, because the stage never messed anybody up. Um, it's it's the 
It's our personal life that messes yeah. us up. It's our spiritual life that messes us up. Um, somebody doesn't lose their ministry. You know, it doesn't go down in flames because they preached a bad sermon. It goes yeah. down in flames because they cheated on their spouse or they got caught stealing money or whatever it is. It's their personal life that couldn't support. Yeah. And and I, I would say it's the same thing with any, you know, celebrity pastor that we hear about or church of a hundred that you never hear about the moral failure of the pastor. It's not that they couldn't preach a good message. It's because of the stuff that was going on off the stage. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I find incredible in all of those kinds of things is just how vast and how wide the grace of God really is. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast right now, chances are that you have been impacted by the ministry of someone who either had a moral failure or, uh, you know, maybe even, you know, I mean, we're all familiar maybe with, you know, the Robbie Zacharias thing where like none of that stuff came out while he was alive, but then all this stuff comes out afterward. And, you know, and then you go, well, does that negate his whole ministry? Well, no, the grace of God is vast. And the way that God may have used him to speak into your life or my life is still valid. Uh, And so, um, man, maybe a couple of things from that. Number one, we all are in stand in need of grace always. And then number two, um, you know, don't feel like that uh, you're disqualified maybe because you blew it. And I don't, you know, not to try to jump into that end of this, the pool necessarily, but maybe maybe you're struggling with that and maybe you're thinking, you know, uh, I've, I've messed up and I've blown it and there's, there's nothing left for me here. I got to go do something else, find something else. And then the grace of God is huge. And so uh, before we move on from that, I have two questions pertaining to this that I need an answer to. So, wow, that's very direct. (laughs) Let me say this before you jump into your question. Yeah. No pressure. I I like the fact that you weren't naming names, but you totally threw Ravi Zacharias (laughs) out of the bus. Yeah. Look right at the camera. Ravi Zacharias. (laughs) There'll be a list of names in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what Uh, are your questions? Okay. So first question, this might be uh, particularly relevant for a young leader who's um, just starting out, something like that. I know that I had to deal with a lot of this. I still have to deal with a lot of this. Um, and that is, ha- okay, so on the one end of the spectrum, you have just monumental arrogance, like somebody thinking, okay, they don't know their place, they don't, all of that, like they're, they're, they see themselves as something that they're not yet, maybe. Um, and then on the other end of it, you have imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and all of the problems that come from that. So um, one of the things that I've had to do uh, because I don't have a background in ministry. And uh, so I remember uh, when I was doing my first funeral, I was had been a pastor for like a couple months, maybe, but I was not going to let them know that, you know, like I wasn't <laughs> going. And so I tried to carry myself as if I was the guy for the job. Like mm-hmm. I'm able to do this. I'm meant to do this. Um, and I've been trying to do that from the beginning, just picturing myself as being more than what I am Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to always be aware to have the humility to know my place and to be cognizant of that. But at the same time, uh, I remember one of the first, one of the earlier things that I've asked you, Pastor Mel, was like, how do you, 
uh, deal with people who can't tell the difference between confidence and arrogance and yeah. who accuse you of being arrogant just because you're being assertive or you're trying to, cause like, uh, somebody who doesn't have a background, who's just started out could say something really assertive and direct and correct and true and be seen as arrogant. Whereas somebody who's got 50 years under their belt could say the same thing in the same way. And everyone's just like, Oh, the wisdom and the, yeah. uh, and so so for someone who's young and starting out, where do they, where should they line up between imposter syndrome and between uh, being so arrogant that they forget their place? Because I know that you've both met both of these types of people uh, in leadership. And so where should they try to fall in between those two ends? And what's a good way for them to carry themselves so that they can dress for the job they want rather than the job they have, uh, but also be thankful and grateful for the situation that they're in? You, you want to? He's demanding an answer. So. I know. I know. You want to go first? I mean, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. It's, um, I think, humility and confidence. There's an ebb and flow to it. Um, there's, it's driving down the highway. You know, you don't drive in a perfectly straight line. You're drifting between the lines all the time. And I think my heart probably drifts all the time. And that's where we've got to be self-aware enough to recognize when I'm functioning in my own confidence in my own ability, my own strength, whatever it might be, instead of, you know, trusting in God. Cause there, I, th I think our confidence is in God. And that sounds like just a trite thing that pastors say, but our confidence has to be in like, I can't do this, but I know God can. So we got it. I, you know, I don't have the answer, but I know God does. So we got it, you know? Um, and so I don't know the right way to do that other than just press into Christ and just pursue him. And that's where our confidence lies. So you know, when it comes to the haters, the naysayers or the things like that, there's nothing we can do about that. People are going to call you arrogant, you know, if you lead with confidence. Um, but it's about, to me, it's about where your confidence is. Mm, it's good. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot to add to that. I just, the thought that I had was, look, I'm in the room, right? So to speak, um, because God put me in the room. Yeah. So I should be confident in that. Uh, and I should carry myself with a certain amount of confidence in regard to that. Uh, but if that confidence then leads me to not rely on God, yeah. well, that's that's a problem, right? Because then then it then it becomes about me. And so um, there's nothing wrong with being confident in the giftings that God has given us. You know, um, really, I think it's more problematic when we're when we're not confident in the things that God has gifted us to do, yeah. because then we don't step into the calling that he's placed on us. And, and, um, but there is a possibility, I think of, of becoming overconfident and taking credit for things that we don't get any credit for. Um, is it possible to, you know, have good systems in place that will bring a lot of people to your church? I, I suppose. I mean, um, you know, when you really start studying, I mean, church, especially churches that have exploded in large growth. Well, there's usually an influx of population into the places where mm -hmm. they're at. There's, you know, there are there are extenuating circumstances, all kinds of things mm -hmm. that that pastor could never have control. Right. Riding the wave, kind of thing. Yeah, and so if we if we if we if we start to think that those things are are because I did something good, yeah. Well, that you know. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, that's really good, man. The, the second part to this that I'm interested in, uh, is you, you had talked about high capacity people who lose their ministry because of X failure or something that happened. Um, 
now we can talk about reasons why those types of people could be back and could be should be brought back into the fold. I can think of one really good one, and I'm curious to know what you think about this. Um, I'm hesitant to uh, push high capacity people too far away after a failure, um, just because they're still going to be high capacity. Only they're not going to be aiming at advancing the kingdom of God if the church won't have them anymore. Mm -hmm. And so what are they using their high capacity for? Because they're still gifted. They're still talented. They're still hardworking. And I just, I'm I'm not sure how much damage the church causes when they take somebody like that and they ostracize them because of of an event or something that they did. Uh, You know, where, where should the church draw the line? And so that they don't end up uh, producing a, a cabal of of uh, maybe not cabal is not the right word. I was about to say, wow, <laughs> that's, that's intense. Um, producing a maybe the leader of a movement which would be antithetical to the church, mm-hmm. uh, who was once involved with the church. Like uh, a good, I don't think that he had a failure that caused him to uh, think that the way that he thinks now. But Bart Ehrman is a good example of this, as far as I'm concerned. Like he's a gifted. Uh, he's a gifted professor. Mm-hmm. He's a gifted teacher. Um, and I can see a reality in which somebody like that would have wanted to use their gifts for the church, but the church rejected them because of a failure. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think he meets that criteria perfectly because I don't think that's why he is, why he teaches what he teaches. But, um, what would you say to that? Like, where should the church be? Should, should they be cautious about pushing people too far away? Uh, first X failure, Sounds like a storyline from Marvel. Uh, that was my first thought. Uh, the The second thing I would say is that we have to take each case, not ne- on its own merits is not the phrase that I really wanted to use, yeah. but um, there are different consequences for, for, for different things, just naturally, right? And so, for example, if... If someone has a very public failure, a leader, a pastor has a very public failure, um, we should work for restoration. We should work toward healing and wholeness in, in whatever that may look like. I mean, that again, the kingdom of God is about the restoration of all things. Mm-hmm. And if I don't believe that there's grace for someone else, then I don't believe there's grace for me. And so it, it's got to be applicable across the board. Um, but I would say that there are times when it would be impossible for that leader to have credibility in the same location. Yeah, be restored there. Yeah. Yeah. And so we need to have wisdom in that regard. Um, and that doesn't have anything to do with the grace that God extends to them. It has to do with the wickedness of our hearts. You know, I mean, um, when when people lose credibility in our eyes, even when they are repentant, sometimes it's hard for us to then still place, uh, you know, place any kind of confidence in them again, and that's just the reality of of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. I do think I, th- I think um, for a lot of leaders, a lot of pastors, whenever there's a moral failure uh, in our church, especially among our staff, I think the the most expedient thing to do is to sweep them away and to you know, hide it and to not work for restoration because it's uh, self-preservation. You know, I want to protect what I have. And, um, and I think that's the wrong motivation. Um, and it's easy to say this sitting 
you know, here talking to you guys, but I would rather lose people trying to do the right thing, trying to restore somebody and walk somebody through a repentant restoration process. Um, whether they're high capacity or not, but especially somebody who has high kingdom potential. Um, you know, I think the motivation a lot of times to cut people loose is just for me, you know, it's just cause it's mm-hmm. easier. I don't have to handle that. Yeah. I don't have to answer hard questions. You know, we can be seen as being tough on sin or whatever it is. And so I think, I think it's, it's good for us. It's hard to restore people because, we're dealing with root issues. It's not just that somebody cheated on their wife or somebody was caught looking at porn or whatever the issue is. Like there's heart issues behind that. And those are way harder to solve than let's put a filter on your computer or, you know. Right. And so I think sometimes pastors specifically, even leaders and churches just don't want to work through that stuff. They feel like the return might not be worth it um, because of what it might cost them. Um, and I, I haven't seen a ton of churches who do restoration really well, who, cause it is hard and it's yeah. messy yeah. and it's, it's, mm. uh, yeah, it's challenging. That's interesting. That could be the church, the church not doing restoration. Well, could be a, a whole podcast episode itself. There's a lot of questions I'm interested in there, but we'll, we can go to the next thing. Yeah. Well, you know, we've gotten pretty deep in the weeds on these articles already, so maybe we should uh, shift <laughs> gears and start talking about the Sunday. Some, yeah. Do we have something light to talk about now? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm afraid not. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, let's talk about the Sunday gathering. So what got me thinking um, was, you know, no matter the size of the church, and, I, and obviously there are some varying things across denominations and that kind of thing. But as a whole, no matter how small or how large a church is, Sunday services have a very similar breakdown, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we're going to come in and we're going to do a certain set of things. And the question that I had was, is that helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Or especially in a really small setting, should we should we rethink the entire thing? Should we blow it up and start over and do something completely different? And would that be healthy and helpful for our church and our community if we did it? Easy peasy. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, so I've thought a lot about this just coming from a, a smaller church. Um, so there were two things that I think that the small churches are missing that they could do maybe with relative ease that I think would be hugely beneficial to the edification of their congregation. Maybe not to tra- transitioning them from small to medium to large, but at least for building up the people that are there. And that is food at the Sunday gathering at some point, either before maybe not during, but after, maybe during, I don't know. I mean, uh, and conversation. I think that um, the presentation of the sermon has taken on a very uniform style. Um, And I think that in smaller contexts, sometimes conversation is more fruitful, like a give and take or Mm. like a Q and a, or even a conversation between two pastors in front of the people in the room Mm. or something like that, I think is a, is hugely beneficial. And I think that some of the smaller churches will look at the larger churches and they'll say, well, I want what they have, so I'm going to do what they do. And they try Mm -hmm. to translate it to the smaller context and a lot is lost. Um, And so 
I would like to see more of an informal dialogue surrounding the, the, the message. And I would also like to see food shared uh, among the people, you know, at every Sunday gathering. Yeah, so for me, uh, I guess maybe I should un- unpack a little bit more where this comes from for me. I spent, I have spent most of my time in ministry uh, doing worship ministry, music, and the arts, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I've served in a wide range of churches as far as size goes. Um, and in smaller churches, there seems to be an inordinate amount of pressure that's felt whether it's real pressure or not, there seems to be an, an inordinate amount of pressure uh, to have the kinds of worship or the kind of presentation or the kind mm-hmm. of atmosphere that a that really large churches have. Well, that's problematic when you start talking about budget and yeah, talent pool human resources and, and yeah, yeah, yeah all of those kinds of things and so i was like man what could we do to relieve some of the pressure that's surrounding that and and at the same time empower small churches to do things that are innovative and and that nobody else is doing that could be really effective in their context I don't have a specific answer for this, but you know some of the pastors of smaller churches that I talk to, um, they've got an being a smaller church gives you a natural advantage in terms of um, you know if you're a church of a hundred or less, there should be a relational advantage to being in that church versus a church of a thousand because very few people that are in a church of a hundred are going to say this church is too big I just can't know anybody. Um, and so how do you leverage those advantages for kingdom purposes? Even if it's not to grow the church, but like you were saying, Michael, for the edification of the body. Um, and so like, there are some advantages. Um, and I don't know specifically what the answer is as far as, well, Hey, functionally let's do this and this and this. But I think, um, you know, goes back to what you were saying, Michael, about, um, you know, I, I think there's an artificial standard for what successful church looks like. Um, and, it's always it's always beyond the horizon. Um, yeah. It's always a little bigger or a little more or whatever it might be, and that's that is a, a natural challenge for any of us. Um, there's a friend of mine, um, pastors in the Dallas Fort Worth area, who um, we were talking a couple of years ago, and he said something. And they're not a very large congregation, but he said something about buying an LED wall in their church. And I was like, "You bought an <laughs> LED wall?" And he said, "Mel, we have to if we're gonna." if we're going to compete with the churches around us, you know, that's what's expected. And it was like, holy cow. Like, you know, wow, yeah. he spent a significant portion of his budget on that. Wow. And, and it's because of that. And usually we don't talk about it like that, but, but he was feeling that yeah. and he responded to it. And the truth is uh, you'll never, you know, if you know gateway church, you'll never out gateway gateway, right? <laughs> you don't have the money, you, you know, they're hundred and whatever, $40 million budget a year. It's never going to happen. Um, and so the key is not to be better than gateway. The key is to be better than we were last weekend and, you know, be better than we were last year. And so how can we leverage some of the things that we think are weaknesses for, for kingdom purposes, no matter what it might be, uh, whether it's our budget or our meeting space, or I know a lot of churches that, that are portable, um, 
get really, really creative with ministry because they yeah. have the limitation of no building. So they have to figure out creative ways. And so I think, you know, smaller churches can get really creative with their Sunday morning gatherings and go, okay, what can we do differently? Um, that's going to leverage some of the things we think are weaknesses. Like, okay, well, we don't have eight people on our worship team. Okay. How can we do a good acoustic set of yeah. worship, you know, instead of trying to get a bass player and a lead guitarist and, you know, all these things. Um, but yeah, I think I, I don't have the, a specific answer, but I think it's just changing your mindset and looking things a little differently. Yeah. I mean, one of the thoughts that I had, you know, I mean, we're, you know, we obviously, um, are in conversation with, and, um, you know, even this podcast is, is largely targeted toward guys who are in rural settings. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of those pastors are pastoring really small churches in really small communities. And when I say small, I mean like, you know, 50 or less. I right. Mean, and so, you know, one of the thoughts that I have was, okay, if if your church is a small group, mm-hmm. right, why not treat Sunday like a small group? Who says that there has to be an expert who stands on the stage and dispenses knowledge? Why mm-hmm. can't, you know, would it be beneficial really to, honestly, to like kind of re-aim things and go, okay, you know what, we're going to focus on walking through the scriptures together. We're going to focus on being discipled and growing. And, you know, and, and then would that then lead to something fresh and new that, um, you know, that spills outside the walls of your church? Okay. So let me push back on that a little bit because part of me feels like, I mean, I think, I know you, you helped plant a church. Mm -hmm. I was part of a church plant and I don't know, Michael, if you have, I know you've been part of some smaller churches, but um, so I, th- there's a cultural pressure expectation. I think that, um, that it would be very hard to overcome that because even if you s- start with that, there's going to be this, this pressure to, okay, we can do this, but is, but when are we going to be a real church? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause absolutely. I know the church plant we were part of people would come in and they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. When you guys get into a building, we'll come back. Yeah. You know, and what they were saying is you're not a real church, but when you are. And so I think there's this this cultural expectation that, okay, this is fine, but this is what real church looks like. And so I don't know if that's if that's something you overcome or you just have to culturally within a church p- continually push back on that and go, no, 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 that's not what church has to look like. Yeah. Um, or if that's something that you just, you just inevitably settle into and go, okay, well, we have to do it this way because when you get to a certain point, that's what the expectation is. And I'm not trying to present a case as much as just I think there's something like that out there yeah yeah and I don't I don't I don't know what the answer is I just you know I guess what I really would like to see come out of this conversation like for people who are listening to this podcast is to know that there is nothing that's off limits there's nothing that's off the table yeah and um you know and not to feel the pressure to try and look like every other church or the, that big box church down the street that, you know, um, that has a certain style and a certain thing that they do or that, you know, there is value in being who you are. Absolutely. uh, And understanding your community. And I also think that, man, look, we, we are in the midst of a really significant cultural shift. And I think that the church will look vastly different moving forward. Uh, you know, some of that will be really positive and some probably not. Um, but, 
we have to be asking those questions and we have mm-hmm. to be praying and seeking God about, you know, how do I engage my community? And that's, that's not anything new, but, mm-hmm. um, nothing's off limits. I don't think. Well, and there's a, there's a Presbyterian church plant in our community that, um, that I love pastor David. He's awesome. They do church differently than we do. And I know that they get some, some weird looks from people. They're like, you wait, you do your service at levity brewing, you know, yeah. and you only do it on Sunday nights or, you know, whatever their pattern was. Cause I know initially so they don't have a problem with the liquor license. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. Those Presbyterians, right. Um, but, but they are intentionally doing something different, you know, and, and there is a certain segment of people they probably won't get because yeah. like what I said earlier, but they're, I mean, if, they're catching people that probably wouldn't walk in the doors of our church because we're a more traditional church. Um, but I, I think it is really healthy for us to go, okay, let's re-examine this and let's let's scramble the pieces and see what happens and let's try this and let's do this. And I think the, the church that allows a pastor to lead that way, that culture has got to be developed. It's got to be shifted because a lot of smaller churches, they've got a very set way of doing things and their expectations are a certain thing that, that the pastor has to lead well through that and go, Hey, we're going to try something different. Cause if we not, we're going to keep getting what we've always gotten, which is for a lot of churches and pastors that I talk to, there's not a lot of salvations happening in their congregations. Yeah. Um, they're not seeing numeric growth like they would like or spiritual development like they would like. So they're like, okay, what do we do? And so I think it's, it's going to take a, a leader saying, okay, we're going to take a risk. We're going to try something. Um, but there's no way to get a different result if we don't do something differently. Yeah. Um, so circling back around to some of the conversation we were having earlier about leadership, uh, you, what you said made me wonder, is there a healthy balance? And I know there has to be, but how do we strike that healthy balance between, uh, as Michael described it, um, a, a pastor who is being led by the, the board or the congregation and a pastor who's able to uh, to lead change like that mm-hmm. without without steamrolling people how do we how do you strike that balance what does that look like because I know that there are probably a lot of pastors who are who listen to this podcast yeah. who are frustrated because either they feel like their hands are completely tied or they are just blowing up the world and there's fallout. Yeah. You know, um, I know at least in our context here at Summit, um, it's easy, especially people who have been around. Todd, you've been part of the staff almost since the time I got here. And it's easy to see the changes we've made. But I will remind people like, hey, the first I came in January of 2014 and leading up to that first Easter uh, we were changing the background of the stage and that was before you came and we were, we didn't have a big budget. And so I just, we went and got pallet wood, like literally pallets. I went and got them from dumpsters all over town, went out to the pavilion in the back and started pulling apart yeah. pallets. I mean, I did this for days and days and days. And then we had some guys come in and just mount it all on the wall. And we had to buy the, the, the studs 
Um, so we spent like $85. That was when lumber was much cheaper than it is now. We would have to take out a second mortgage <laughs> on the studs now. About $8,500 yeah, for right. the same studs um, today. But I had to buy the studs, and then we mounted the the, the lumber you know, on the wall, this, these, you know, uh, this this random scrap wood, basically. Yeah. And so we had a board meeting while they were putting it up. And again, I'm a brand new leader, brand new pastor, and we're walking in, and a couple of the board members said, what is what is going on here? And I just said, oh, we're this is what we're doing. And like, uh, but it's going to look like a barn. I was like, trust me, it's going to be great. And I <laughs> could tell that if that was something we would have put to a vote, it would have been a hard sell for me, probably. Yeah. And all we're talking about is some pallet wood on the wall. The cost was very low. And I told them, I said, guys, it costs us 85 bucks. If we hate it, we're going to pull it down. Um, trust me, it's going to be okay. And in the grand scheme of things, in the history since I've been here, that is a very, 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 very small thing. But that was a big thing because it helped me earn credibility and trust because they said, okay, we let him lead us and we see we saw that that was a good thing. Yeah. We got good feedback. And so it made it that much easier to trust me in a little bit of a bigger decision. And, right. and really that's how this has gone. And so that's where I would tell those leaders, if you're struggling to gain traction, build credibility with the small decisions. You know, Don't go in guns blazing and try to change the entire culture of your church. Start with the little things and build credibility with that, you know, get some little wins under your belt that you can hang your hat on and go, no, 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 see, this is, trust me, you know, we can, we can work through this together. If you trust me, this is the kind of pattern we're going to see. Yeah. Uh, and maybe some of you have heard this analogy, but I had a pastor when I was young and first started expressing an interest in getting into the ministry who talked about moving the piano one inch at a time. Yeah. You know, if you want the piano to be on the other side of the stage, uh, don't just move it to the other side of the stage, move it one inch at a time. And I don't know that I would completely buy into that. I think there are times when you just move the piano to the other side of the stage. Like you, you tear down what was on the stage and <laughs> yeah. you put up some pallet wood. But I think that the point there being like, start with something that the, the potential for pain is minimal, yeah. right? Uh, you know, $85 for some studs. And then if we don't like it, we can tear it down. That's not going to be that big a deal, but it yeah. does build confidence when, um, when that decision doesn't, you know, destroy the church, right? When that decision, you know, does make some positive um, progress and move things forward, you know, be faithful over a few things and I'll make you ruler over many. It's almost like yeah. there's a scriptural precedent for this stuff. <laughs> I will say for the record, I hate the move the piano one inch at a time thing. Like, yeah. And that's, that's, I think there's a context for that, but my personality is given to like, we're moving the piano and we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to explain the vision why we're moving the piano. And some of you are going to hate it, but we're moving the piano. And, yeah. but again, I'm more given to that. Sure. Uh, my personality is the more that way than I think some guys are, but so here's a question for uh, pastors who might be presiding over a church that's really struggling to get out of the small uh, stage and the pastor has a vision where he wants to transition from small to medium, maybe to large, or he wants to pastor a church like that. Um, because we can talk about ways in which to, uh, in which to do that, like to do non-traditional uh, Sunday gatherings, have things look a little different, be creative in the way that you grow. Um, when I think about this, sometimes I think about the, uh, it's, it's most commonly, I think, called the 80-20 rule, and some people call it the Pareto distribution, and it's the idea that the top 20% of performers will accumulate 80% of the resources, and you see that pretty much everywhere. Um, so w would you say to these pastors that maybe if their aim is to pastor a healthy church, 
or a medium-sized large church, should they continue to try to grind it out uh, in the small setting where they are in senior leadership, or should they join with a church that's already at that capacity? Like, what's the what's the more painless way of getting there? Well, uh, let me let me back up like the the premise that you laid out. I, I would say most of the pastors I know, especially pastors that are pastoring smaller churches, their desire is not to pastor a larger church. Their past their desire is to reach more people. Um, I've never talked to anybody who's ever said, how do I get to 200? Um, but I've talked to lots of guys who have said, man, how do I reach more people in my community? And that's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. Yeah. Um, because the numbers for most of the pastors I know are not the motivation. It is, we're not reaching souls the way I would like to. And so I think for a lot of those pastors, they do have a desire to have a team. Um, but it's not necessarily to make their life easier. It's so that they can facilitate more ministry. Um, and so I, I think fundamentally, a lot of the guys that I know, a lot of the people I know, they're, they would uh, push back pretty hard on the idea of, okay, I'm never going to be able to get there doing this. So it's better for me to, to join a, a, a bigger team or whatever it might be. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I just would question why, um, let's say the uh, the motivation is to reach more people, uh -huh. and you have a church in the community that's reaching a lot of people. Yeah, if that really was the motivation, purely, why not just <laughs> I, use I that as, you're a, you're, you're from as a, a vehicle function, as a pure function? I mean, as a pure <laughs> vehicle of like functionality or uh, effectiveness, or is that what you're talking well, about? Well, yeah, like, so like in, partially before I joined the team at Summit, I thought to myself, well, I could start a church. That's gonna be really, really hard, mm -hmm. and I have no resources, so where do I start? Well, yeah. I can get creative with it, I can think about it. Um, oh, but look, there's a church here in town that's reaching a lot of people and doing a lot of good. I'll just join with them, yeah. uh, it, you know, and it seemed like, it seems like uh, that was a, more painless way of getting to uh, being able to be effective in ministry. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you have to sacrifice senior leadership in order to do that uh, for the most part. I mean, if you're yeah. in senior leadership of a smaller congregation and then you join a larger church, I think often you would have to sacrifice some of that seniority, you know, coming in and maybe that's the bitter pill to swallow. But do you think that, um, do you think that churches should aim towards consolidating under bigger churches or should they continue to try to shift around and, 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 and look, we're, we're assuming that they're not okay with where they're at. Yeah. Okay. Like that's, yeah. that's built into the question. Like obviously if somebody is, um, you know, presides over a congregation of 50 to 70 people and they're yeah. happy with it and everybody's doing well and there's lots of spiritual formation happening yeah. and the church is a, a boon to the community, then that's, that, that wouldn't, you know, they just yeah. keep, keep rolling. Uh, not everybody's meant to be the same. Um, but in a situation where it's like, oh, I've been racking my brain. I can't figure this out like this. You know, yeah. nothing's working. When, when should they, when should those leaders apply for a position at a, at, at a church that is functioning as the major game in town, so to speak? Um, Are I was uncomfortable with this conversation yeah. right now as I am. Yeah, like, this one's I'm wildly uncomfortable, uh, but yeah, I don't know that they should. Yeah. For a couple of reasons, 
Um, number one, God rarely does things because they're expedient. Yeah. God is at work accomplishing things that we sometimes don't perceive. And God is much more concerned in developing our holiness and our character and in us learning to know and trust him uh, than he is what is expedient. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secondly, and I'm just going to put this out there, um, if if there is an ineffective leader at a small church, he's not going to become more effective just because he goes and applies at the big church down the street. Correct. Um, do I think that there are situations in which a small church needs to consolidate with, come underneath a larger church, and, and that larger church bring their resources to bear on that and help that church to to recoup and get, you know, and to begin to grow again and to be healthy again? Absolutely. In fact, I feel like that if you know, for us as summit, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn because I'm not the lead pastor, but for us as summit, if we're not willing to share the resources that God has given us to help someone else, then, you know, uh, then we're not fulfilling the responsibility that God's given us yeah. with the resources that he's placed in our hands. And I know yeah. that Mel would agree with that, yeah. you know. Um, but we... Look, there are people in every hamlet and borough and small town and that Jesus loves and died for. And there will never be large churches in those areas because there's they're just not the population to support one. Right. But do those places need healthy, effective, high-capacity leaders who can reach the people of those communities? Absolutely. I have always been disappointed with and struck by the fact that God never, I can't say never, but rarely seems to call a pastor to a smaller city, (laughs) smaller church, smaller salary. Uh Right? It's amazing how God's plan is always upwardly mobile. Right. You know? (laughs) So so I think there are some hard questions that we need to ask around those things, but expedience I don't think is one of them. Well, and just full transparency, um, I think a lot of churches do need to look at a merger of some kind. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a merger with a larger church. Maybe it's a a true merger with another similar-sized church. Um, And I think a lot of churches are resistant because we're more interested in our kingdom than the kingdom. We're more interested in hanging on to what we have, uh, even if it's shrinking and dwindling and dying, rather than saying, okay— I mean, this sounds terrible to say it this way. I heard uh, Rob Ketterling from River Valley Church in Minnesota. He said, there are some churches that need to become organ donors, um, living organ donors wow. for, you know, other churches that, that hey, we're going to we're gonna give you ourselves, you know, to fulfill the, the purposes and the vision that God placed on us. And that's hard. Um, but I think some churches need to do that, but we're so focused on what we want and, you know, Hey, this is where my grandma was saved and where my mom was saved and where I was saved. And by God, we're going to stay here forever. Yeah. And it's like, well, you're just perpetuating um, something that's that's never going to be able to be vibrant because we're more concerned with what we want than what God wants. Now, that's not every small church in America at all. Right. Um, and and for us, you know, as a church, I'm interested in merging with churches, but I'm more interested in helping churches get healthy. Yeah. Um, 
But the real question is, do the churches want to be healthy? <laughs> you know, because it comes back to wanting what I want and I want it to look a specific way. And because we've had talks with churches about merging, we get approached fairly regularly, I would say, about a church saying, hey, would you guys be interested? And it's like, well, we might be. Would you? Well, yeah, we would. But a lot of times what they want is for us to get them out of their debt. They don't want to make changes to how they do things. Yeah. And, you know, and so, so yes, I think it is healthy for churches to look and go, hey, maybe it's, maybe we need to close our doors and merge with another church. Or maybe we need to liquidate our assets and leverage that for kingdom purposes and merge over here, whatever it might be. So I don't think it's just as, uh, as, as easy an issue of, hey, a small church needs to merge with a big church and then it'll be more effective for the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. I don't have anything to add to that. Well, man, we have, uh, we've been around the horn today. Oh, that's crazy. Broad, broad <laughs> topics today. Lots yeah. of stuff. We we just solved racism in America. We solved the crisis of churches closing in America. We just we don't. We probably don't need to have another podcast after this, do we? <laughs> I think that's we're done. That's it. <laughs> now, uh, man. Hey, thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. Hey, uh, I know that we're going to continue to settle into this new format, and it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be really good. I'm excited about where we're headed. So uh, just a quick reminder, uh, next Tuesday at the at 2 o'clock, uh, is, that, is that the time, Michael? Is that when we're going live? Yes. Yeah, so next Tuesday at 2 p.m., we will be live on our YouTube channel. Uh, jump on there, join in the conversation. If you have things uh, from this week that you want to weigh in about or questions or thoughts that you had, we want to engage you in that conversation and um, just see how we can help one another. Uh, anything else you guys want to add before we say goodbye this week? Yeah, for those of you that are listening, um, watching, we want to be a resource for you. And so if there's a way we can be a help, um, be a support, be an encouragement, no matter what it may be, uh, we'd be delighted and honored to be able to come alongside you um, in, in whatever way that might be. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Let us know. Um, and uh, we, we'd be delighted. It'd be our honor. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you on the Backboardy Leadership Podcast in two weeks.